Well, welcome to the Values Driven Productivity Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Mankin, and the purpose of this podcast is to help you make meaningful progress on things that matter. On today's episode, a conversation with Justin Miller, the co-founder and CEO of Care for AIDS, about what it looks like to take steps towards solving large problems. So if you are currently climbing a mountain or you are looking to start climbing a mountain of a problem in your life, I hope that this is an encouragement to you. When all is lost and the world is losing too, Justin Miller co-founded Care for AIDS as a junior at Vanderbilt University in 2007. He became the full-time CEO in 2009 and has since led the organization to uh, amazing growth. I mean, they serve more than 14,000 families. They have 50 centers in East Africa. They have 145 employees and $3.35 million in annual donations. And over the last 10 years, uh, you know, Justin has been focused on HIV, um, but his, his life mission can be more broadly defined as a desire to help mobilize people and resources to bring about social and spiritual transformation. He's married to Lindsay. They live in Atlanta, Georgia, where they attend Renovation Church. They've got a three-year-old daughter named Addison and a six-month-old son named Logan. And what I love about Justin is that in 2007, after he went on a trip to Kenya, and saw a way that he might be able to help and be a part of uh, supporting people with HIV and seeing an end to the HIV and AIDS crisis around the world. Uh, he went on that trip, and, and instead of just seeing that opportunity or seeing the, the pain of people living with HIV and walking away from it, he decided to do something and to step up and to be a part of a solution and take action towards towards being uh, a member of a community of people who are working to solve a really, really large and complicated problem. And so I know for me, it is easy when there is a problem that feels too large, it feels too intimidating, it feels like it would just be better to not get started at all than to take step to- steps towards progress, that it's just a-, a lot easier to just stop and walk away. But Justin didn't do that. And obviously the growth that they've experienced, the impact that they've had at Care for AIDS around the world has been incredible and has been a part of a community of people who are working to to be a part of the solution to the AIDS and HIV epidemic around the world. And so if you are somebody who is thinking about the problems in your life as too daunting, or even you've seen a problem you think you can solve, but feel too overwhelmed by it, I hope this conversation with Justin Miller is not only encouraging to you, but also gives you some practical things you can do to start making steps towards being a part of the solution. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Justin Miller. Well, Justin, thanks so much for, uh, for taking time to, uh, to be on the show. The first question I would love to hear just, I don't even have a good picture of the, the issue of the AIDS epidemic in the world today and specifically in Kenya where you work. So maybe you can start by just giving us a picture and painting a picture of what AIDS, the impact of AIDS on the world right now. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, first of all, thanks, Blake, for having me on the show today. I'm, I'm happy to be able to to tell some of what we're doing in East Africa. Um, it, you're not alone in your you know lack of, of awareness about what's happening with HIV. Uh, it's kind of the uh, the state of the world right now. It's it's an issue that seems. Uh, 
long behind us and mostly under control. And, and we have to, to recognize that there have been some amazing strides that have been made in this area. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, touch on some of those gains that we've made. Um, we've seen that more people than ever have gotten access to treatment and care, and, and that's producing longer uh, life expectancies. And as a result of that, new infections are starting to decline, maybe not as rapidly as we would like, but they are starting to go down. We've been able to offer unprecedented access to care for mothers uh, who are carrying children who we want to be born HIV negative. And so I do think there's a lot of bright spots in this crisis. But I will also say, uh, actually this past week, uh, George W. Bush said in in a presentation that although we have begun to turn the tide on HIV and AIDS, our gains are fragile. And I would say that I would echo that sentiment. Um, We are still faced with a a massive amount of work ahead of us, and we cannot uh, stop where we are today. Um, We have about 2 million new infections per year uh, around the world. About two-thirds of those are in the sub-Saharan Africa region. Um, There are still a million uh, HIV-related deaths every single year, um, which is which is far too many. Um, and of the 38, 39 million people in the world that have HIV, about 40% of them still don't know they have it, uh, which is obviously makes it really difficult to uh, completely turn the tide on this issue. And then there's just there's other threats um, ahead of us that that could potentially start to undo some of the progress that we've made. Resistance to the drugs because people are getting treatment earlier and for longer periods of time. People who are not no longer seeing HIV as a real threat to them because people are living normal lives with it. And so they're not taking uh, the precautions to make sure they don't contract it. And there's more of a, uh, a careless attitude about it in a lot of, uh, a lot of circles. And, and generally speaking, you know, the funding globally is, is still on a decline uh, as people are kind of uh, fatiguing about this issue. So, and that's a lot of information, but generally speaking, it, it is something that we don't hear a lot about, but it's still very much an issue uh, in our world today. And we have to uh, continue to, to work hard to, to continue to make gains in this area. Mm, and you've been, you've been working hard to make gains in this area for a long time. And you started this organization at Vanderbilt. That was, I guess, a little bit over a decade ago, maybe. Is that right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so yes. take, take me back to even just the, the birth of your organization, Care for AIDS, and um, maybe even your dorm room after you took a trip to Kenya with a couple of your friends and came back with, uh, after a life-changing experience, wanting to do something about it. How did Care for AIDS get its start? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I was, I was in college, and, and this was the, the last thing that I expected to um, become interested in or passionate about. Uh, I was, I was in college to kind of pursue a, uh, a career in the marketplace, uh, was not really looking at the social sector. Um, my experience in my life coming from a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, I never uh, encountered HIV. I didn't know really the first thing about it. And then out of nowhere, 18 years old, I sitting in a, an auditorium, listening to Bono give a presentation about, the AIDS crisis and how uh, we as members of the church globally and the faith community had a, had a responsibility um, that we had forsaken to lead the charge against HIV and AIDS um, 
because we had something unique um, to offer, and that was um, this eternal hope um, that uh, was missing from the the whole response. And he said that even if it's you know uh, it's costly, but even though it's complicated, even though it's thought to be a moral hazard to be associated with HIV, that that doesn't excuse the church from taking its its rightful place at the head of this response. And, uh, and I thought that challenge was, was so compelling, but I was so ignorant about the whole issue and didn't know where to begin. Um, and I was part of that majority that didn't kind of understand um, or really uh, appreciate the severity of what was happening around the world. And so that set me on a personal journey of discovery of what's going on and what is my part to play. And fast forward nine months and I'm on a plane to Kenya with a few buddies of mine to produce a documentary about HIV and AIDS. And we had hoped to um, bring to light more of what I just described, help people understand it. And maybe that awareness and understanding would drive more action. And uh, we end up on the ground in Kenya and this is a project between our sophomore and junior years of college. None of us imagined that we would uh, end up dedicating a good portion of our lives to this this work. But we got there on the ground, and we were you know, confronted with this this massive issue. And um, for the sake of our time today, it's it's hard to 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 say it in a few words. But really, there was a it was very evident there was a disintegration among in the family dynamic where parents were not getting access to the basic care that they needed in order to live, um, uh, you know, a, a full and, and flourishing life. They were maybe getting access to medication, but without the accompanying services like the education on adherence and hygiene and uh, the complementary nutrition that was required for the medication to be effective and for the the counseling services to help deal with the trauma of being discriminated against and losing loved ones to HIV and losing kids to HIV and the ability to kind of enter into the workforce and be able to provide, you know, to start some kind of business and have the, the skills and the capital and the market to be able to do that. It's this complex set of needs that someone with HIV has, but they're not able to access a lot of that either the availability of it, their awareness of it, the affordability of it. And what would happen is these parents in isolation would just um, prepare for the worst, which was was to die and create orphans that somebody would have to, to care for, either a relative or an orphanage, or they would end up on the streets. But we looked at these family units, and, uh, and time and time again, we saw that there was so much potential in these families, if um, at that moment of greatest uh, crisis, um, there could be a very cost-effective and timely intervention in the life of that family, we could totally change the trajectory of that family going forward, and that parent could be stabilized and ultimately become sustainable, uh, independent of any kind of program. And that was the initial spark on that trip that we said, we have got to 
we get we, we recognize there's a gap here that's not being met and it's either we're reacting to the orphans that are being created or on the front end we're providing medical interventions but we need a a social response that is more holistic and more complete and if we can intervene and help these families uh, be secured and strengthened then we can prevent tens of thousands of kids from becoming orphans and as a faith-based organization we thought man what, what better way to deliver these services than through the local church so that we can um, pair these services with a presentation of the gospel uh, and a way for people to be discipled through the program and, and obviously they're not selected into the program uh, based on any any f- test of faith and they're not required to participate in the spiritual component of the program, but our clients really uh, get to explore spiritual matters with our counselors, and we've seen amazing uh, impact uh, through those conversations as well. And so uh, that was a long answer, Blake, to your question to say that uh, there was a need that made itself clear to me, and I came back to Vanderbilt University feeling like um, I had a, a responsibility uh, and an opportunity to to get involved in this issue in a really uh, practical way. And on that trip, I had met two Kenyan pastors who shared my same vision and same passion for this work. And they had actually already more or less designed the response that we would eventually use to start Care for AIDS. And we became this three-person co-founder team that would uh, launch this organization and still 11 years later uh, work together and co-lead this organization. And they brought amazing, uh, obviously, local uh, knowledge and, and context and leadership. And I was able to help provide more of the, re- the resources and um, bring capacity uh, to that so that we could we could scale up uh, this work. But started in my dorm room and started with you know some small incremental steps. And truthfully, it's been small incremental steps for 10 years now. Um, but that, that has ultimately created a lot of momentum for the organization. Hmm. Yeah. And that, that spark that happened you know, 11 years ago has grown into a fire really. I mean, it's the organization has scaled. You've gone through a lot, I'm sure over the last 11 years, a lot of victories, challenges, twists and turns in the story. But I saw an interview you did with Forbes uh, last year where you talked about the flywheel principle and its role in your growth over time. So maybe you could explain what the flywheel principle is and then how it's been applied in your context. Yeah. So, um, I think it was, uh, it was Jim Collins who first introduced me to the idea of the flywheel. And you can imagine this, you know, two ton, uh, wheel that you're trying to, to create, uh, some revolutions in and start to push and, uh, and get to move. But you know, this first, few pushes, you're, you're just barely getting it to move at all. You're, you're just inching along. And over time, um, that constant force, uh, will begin to create some momentum to the point where the wheel is essentially turning itself because of the weight of, of what's moving. And the truth is, is like, I think there's three big components that make the flywheel principle work is that the pressure that you're applying has to be constant. Um, it, it has to be in the same direction and it has to be like over a long period of time. And, you know, any one of those parts is missing and, and you might not realize that same benefit. But for us, um, there's never been any doubt in our minds that this 
this issue, uh, and, and really in our case, this model has, has really been our primary focus. We've replicated our model 50 times, um, always evolving, always improving, but 50 different times uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, we've had the opportunity to go in, in multiple different directions, uh, going into new geographies, new services, new programs. But we've stayed relentlessly focused on this one thing that we, we knew we could do really, really well. And then now we've done that over a period of 10 years, which is hard for um, uh, any organization or any founder to stay in something for that long. But um, the result has been this, like you said, this growing momentum that has begun to carry us um, forward in a almost an exponential manner. Um, but it, I, I look at different aspects of Care for AIDS and I and I can appreciate why this principle is so valuable. I mean, we've been talking to people about this issue and about our model for ten years, and like, it, it's just for people to finally start to understand it and to get through to them. It's taken that type of repetition and uh, consistency and, and simple simplicity. Uh, to help them understand that um, when we want to build our, our donor base, you know, we're, we've got now 10 years of uh, consistent results and communications in a way that's built trust uh, with our donors over a long period of time. We're not just a flash in the pan and then we're gone, but we've created that, um, that trust over a decade. So a lot of things, uh, even internally, it has taken us a long time to change certain aspects of our internal culture, um, but it's through that uh, constant uh, applied force in the same direction over an extended period of time. And and I think in this, not to go down a, a trail here, but I think the uh, Eugene Peterson sums it up best when he talks about the the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. I mean that is what we want to be known for with Care for AIDS when it comes to an issue that, quite frankly, is very um, at times unpopular and hard to work back into people's consciousness. Uh, but for us, this is the, this is the thing that we've been called to, to champion. Hmm. Yeah, and over, over this long period of time, this could have been just you and your co-founders, just the three of you or however many were involved at the beginning. But over time, because of the scale that you've experienced, there's been a, an inherent requirement to bring other people onto the team and to be a part of this and more people to support the organization. And in that same Forbes interview, you talked about something, and it was about communicating a crystal clear vision to keep your employees, stakeholders engaged over a long period of time. So I'm, I'm wondering how you have translated or how you learned to translate over time that initial dream you had when you were in college into a vision that you feel like is compelling enough for people to not just buy in to give once or to serve for a few months, but to, to be in for the long haul, what does it look like to, to do that really well? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a great question. I think, I mean, there is, there is a little bit of a difference between like, what does it take to get somebody to, um, to maybe come in and, and, kind of stick their toe in the water of care for AIDS, but then to be able to secure them as a long-term uh, partner and and quite frankly I don't know I mean everyone who's listened to this you you may fall somewhere on this continuum I'm I'm more of an operations guy myself I the the starting part of care Frades was uh, was challenging for me to to pull up and and wear that hat and and even today to continue to remind myself that I am the steward of the vision that we have and I've got to uh, work really hard even though I can see it 
very clearly. How am I communicating that? And how am I doing it so regularly and consistently um, that it will begin to take hold in my people? Um, and, and I tend to get a little heads down sometimes and, uh, and, and forget to, um, to lead by, by, by casting that vision. But for us, you know, it, it has evolved over time how we talk about our vision. Uh, going back to Jim Collins, we're, we're really, you know, camping out on him today. But, uh, you know, he, for him, he talks about vision maybe in a way that's a little bit different than what other people may have experienced in the past. I mean, he said your, your vision is it's kind of a component of a few different things. Uh, or it's made up of a few different components. Um, one being your purpose of, of why do we exist? And, uh, we had a very, um, complicated and lengthy statement that was kind of a mission like statement. Um, but it was one that was really hard. It was more of uh, a guiding internal statement, not necessarily something that would, uh, grab people. Um, and so we've, we've re- rewritten our purpose to say that we exist to empower people to live a life beyond AIDS. And, but over the years we have, we have figured out, you know, to work a lot at how do we communicate this? There's no frame of reference for this. Um, we talked about orphan prevention for a while was kind of a key, um, hook that we wanted people to, to think about. Um, but as Jim Collins would talk about your vision is your purpose, your values, and then this big, hairy, audacious goal, uh, of what it is you're trying to accomplish. And for us, um, it has taken time for us to really, um, create and, and believe that we can achieve a really big, uh, hairy audacious goal. Um, because we were, I think I was always a little timid to put out there some big idea or big vision that we were afraid we might come up short on. And, uh, and so for us now, like we've, we're talking about, um, we've seen the effects of what caring for 10,000 people over the past 10 years has accomplished and meant in the communities where we work. And so now we're trying to figure out how do we empower a hundred thousand families, um, in the next decade, um, of this ministry. And it's big enough. It's, it's massive. It's big enough where it causes us to, to think, uh, to think differently. And hopefully people that are outside the organization will, um, be drawn into that and and their investment of, it's, that's a vision that I think people, we want them to stake their lives on, um, join our team, give money to it. Um, and, I'll admit that there have been times where we just, the dream hasn't been very clear or it hasn't been very compelling uh, for us as an organization. And, um, and I think we have to all remember, and I, uh, this is a good reminder for me too, that at the end of the day, like we can, we can talk all we want to about this picture of what we imagine, imagine the desired future to be. But I'm reminded time and time again, that we have to make a case for people of why they can't stay here. Like we we almost have to, to deconstruct of this idea of why here's not acceptable, uh, even more so with HIV and AIDS, because it feels like we're in a pretty good place. Um, and then, then try to paint a picture of what this future is going to look like. But people, if they're going to move to something, they're going to have to, to be sufficiently dissatisfied. And this, these are Bill Heibel's words that they sufficiently dissatisfied with where they are before you can get them to move to where, you know, you're going. And, uh, and that's something that we have to keep, reminding ourselves of as we, as we think about uh, where this is going. So the dream that, you know, as you think about translating that dream into vision, um, I think you have to do the, the hard work of sitting down and asking yourself these questions. Why can't we stay here? What happens if the organization that we want to create doesn't ever exist? Um, 
you know, who, you know, who misses our organization uh, when, if we don't operate, um, what's at stake if we don't do this, um, and trying to, to put some of that, that, that vision of a dream into some words that can ultimately translate into something that can produce passion in people and be that vision. So, uh, I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. And I'm thinking even, even about how many people would go on a trip like you went on in college and experience that firsthand insight into an issue this big and just come back and kind of shake their head and think like, wow, that's you know so sad that this is happening in the world. And then just go about their life, but you have taken something you saw and something you experienced and people that you got to know and turn that into a vision that you've been pursuing for over 10 years. And it's just an an issue when you think about even something like AIDS, it's something that feels so overwhelming and so big, like it's impossible to really make a dent in it. Like you can, and I mean, there's so many experiences I've had similar to, an, uh, an AIDS epidemic where the problem just feels so big that I just come home or I think about it and then just move on just because I'm overwhelmed with the size of the problem. So I've heard about, you even talk about though, some of the, the, the mishaps that you had when you scaled too quickly, um, and how you corrected that over time. And so there's this element of wanting to scale really quickly to address these big problems, um, while not feeling overwhelmed by the problem itself, but also, uh, understanding that there's a responsibility to scale well and to grow with quality. So there's a lot in that, but I'm wondering how you might advise people who are listening, who are feeling paralyzed by the size of the mountain of a problem that they feel like they either want to climb or are too intimidated to climb while also avoiding kind of a growth at all costs mentality. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and one that you have to hold, uh, very carefully. Cause as you, uh, as you suggested, there was a season when, um, well, there was, there was a chance that there was a season where I almost kind of aborted the whole care for AIDS idea because it obviously felt, it felt big. It felt, uh, that I was ill-equipped, uh, to do that kind of challenge. And so I've, I've been in that place. I've also been in the place where, uh, I've kind of, I've tasted, uh, what it was like to to grow and see impact and uh, experience whatever you know boost to my ego that that would uh, produce and all the things that would we're trying to like drive um, both both good motives and bad that were driving this growth at all cost mentality. So, um, but to your question, the you know obviously I would I would emphasize that a a big vision or even a, a burden that you have for a people group or an issue that, that doesn't excuse or allow, uh, for undisciplined growth. And we, we were very undisciplined in, in our growth, um, for a period, uh, financially was where we were undisciplined, but I would say that doesn't have to just be a financial issue. There are so many aspects of your organization that you have to hold in tension with each other and your capacity as a leader and your health as a leader is one of those areas. Um, obviously, organizations can run their leaders into the ground um, in periods of growth uh, and leave a, a massive amount of destruction in their wake. You have um, you have obviously this this donor side, this revenue side that if you're not preparing for that and stewarding your donors well. Um, or preparing a pipeline of new donors, you are going to get to a point where that will be the bottleneck that will limit your ability to grow or your operations and your programs. And you're trying to implement programs, but the 
the effectiveness of them are suffering under the the weight of expansion and ultimately you get to a point where you're not really creating the kind of impact you thought you were which is then therefore going to affect uh your ability to raise money and and so there's there's this interconnectedness and talent has worked in there as well You, you get to a point where you realize we don't have the right leadership to be able to take us to the next level so i would just say that um there are a number of things that in a growth at all costs mentality, um, you are potentially going to see one aspect of your organization uh, begin to maybe atrophy or just be ignored as you do that. And the costs are, are really high. Um, and I would say that I would encourage the leaders who are feeling either side of that tension to ask themselves and really see, to seek an answer to the question of why is it that I feel this way? Do I feel like I'm paralyzed because it's I'm fearing the failure that might result from this? I'm feeling that there'll be some personal loss of, of time or money or comfort. Um, and just remember that, you know, and then begin to kind of not believe the lies that you're being told about that and realize that, that God doesn't really care about the the size or scale of our organization. He just wants us to be obedient to what it is he's asked us to do and, uh, and, and try to take that first step as small as it may feel towards moving towards action. And if you're on the other side of it, um, where I've been as well, the growth at all cost mentality, it's probably rooted in some feeling like you have to save the people you're trying to serve, um, save the world and, realizing that you're putting too much on yourself in that place and it's not dependent on you to do that or you're trying to find um, some type of approval from somebody, uh, from God, from others in your work and that's driving you to um, try to, to grow at all costs. And so at the end of the day, I think there, all of those mentalities are rooted in some uh, false belief that we are telling ourselves and if we can return to a place where we understand our identity and who we are and what God has asked of us, hopefully we can um, arrive in a more uh, healthy and sustainable way to think about growing our organization. Hmm. Yeah. And I want to, I want to transition just to the lessons you have learned from some of your clients, some of the people that are served by care for AIDS. You work with a lot of parents who are living with HIV and you are helping them equip or you're equipping them to invest in their families for years to come. Um, and so in your mission, you know, there's obviously a desire to see families flourish and grow. And as, as a father, as you're a father, I, I'm wondering what kind of lessons you've learned from care for AIDS clients that you've been able to apply even to your own family. Oh yeah, that's, there's so, so much we could unpack here. And I really do. I mean, even when people come to Kenya with us, I, I try to, to help, break them of the thinking that I'm going to Kenya because I have something really unique to offer to these people because the truth is I want them to to go in with the mindset of, of what can I learn from these these phenomenal people um, at the the first thing I think anyone notices that I that I really hold on to is the idea that the people we're serving um, they have such a um, deep and, and abiding and, and unshakable joy in their life that is not dependent on any type of circumstance um, that they have because their, their suffering in their lives and their, 
um, need has created this this dependence on God that it's hard for us to even imagine or, or simulate in our context here where we have more than we would ever need. Um, but I, you just see the the circumstances and how hard it is, and that they just have such a, a gratitude. Um, and I think it's because they just really understand how to order their life in such a way that they just are they keep things in the appropriate place. And and that relationship with God is 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 paramount and their relationships with their family and with their community is um, second only to that. And they're, you know, you can see how when they're living in such a way to try to be a blessing to their kids or to their community members, um, it just brings their life into order and they want to be in good health so they can do all these other things. And then the very bottom of the list is, you know, I need to have enough resources to be able to do all these things, but it's not the thing that, that governs their lives. And so there's just a, there's just a joy, uh, in them and, and there's a gratitude in them that, uh, I want to, uh, work really hard to instill, instill in our family and, and not fall into the trap of trying to, to isolate ourselves from community or even needing to depend on other people at all. Um, because I've seen like what that does for a community of people when they're, connected and uh, sharing things in common with one another. And so those are just a few examples. Mm. So good. So good. So one of my, one of my last questions for you is, is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the show and that is about a, a habit that you have. And the question is, what is one habit that you have put in place in your life? And this could be something you do regularly um, or it should be since it's a habit, but something you've put in place to make progress on something that you really care about. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, if time will allow you, I'll give you, I'll give you one personal and one professional. Um, I, you know, well, first of all, I'll say that, you know, I, any so-called habit that I would create in my life is only because it ends up on my calendar and that my calendar, um, for better or worse, like I just, that, that helps me govern my life and, and keep the priorities that I want to keep front and center, uh, in front of me. And so, I mean, a few things that on a personal side, I, you know, I really wanted to, one of the things I cared about was having an, the right amount of energy and the right mentality that would allow me to, to, would supply me with everything I needed to do what care phrase would demand of me and my family would require of me. And so, you know, for me, a big thing has been that like 5:30 AM to 7 AM period of my day, um, that six months ago, I would not have believed that I could have done something in that period of time. But the way that I have now structured my mornings, uh, from a spiritual perspective, uh, mental and like intellectual perspective and, and, uh, spiritual, physical, and kind of mental to kind of prepare me and ready me for the day and the demands that will come. Uh, that's been critical for what me. What does that and, look like specifically? Um, so, you know, it's right out of bed. It's, it's into the, the, the workout for the morning, um, either running or I, I go to a, I go to a CrossFit gym, never thought I'd be a CrossFitter, but and here I am. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, after that, coming right into coming back and eating breakfast while I'm reading the Word and praying and trying to have that um, that quiet time for the morning, and then um, just trying to then kind of follow that up as time allows with some other 
reading what's what's happening in the world today and what I need to know about and and then just getting ready for the day from there. And so that's been a I know that morning routines is not a new idea and people have been doing that uh, really effectively for a long time, but for me that is what is allowing me to start my days well. Um, and then and then the other thing as you guys are all aware it's so easy for your 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 calendars to get taken over by um, other people's priorities and uh, opportunities that may come about. And so on a professional note, I've just, I really realized a couple years ago that one of my biggest values that I can bring to Care for AIDS is by really spending time strategically with, uh, with donors, with partners, with peers, with people that can help us move forward. Um, and these are very like strategic conversations that I want to be engaging with. Um, but I was, I'd kind of not really, I'd lost control of that a little bit and it's kind of just responding to what meetings and opportunities came about. And so just being in the habit of, of blocking months ahead of time, these are the times that I'm going to spend with strategic partners or strategic individuals or groups that I want to I have a real strategic intent behind to help drive care phrase forward. And I want to allow time in my schedule to spend time with people that hopefully I can add value to and may not necessarily know that there's a certain outcome that we hope from that conversation. But, uh, for me, like blocking my time into the things that will help move care phrase forward is a responsibility that I have as a leader. And that was something that for the longest time I kind of lost sight of. So I don't know, just things like that, that, um, are rhythms in my week that are there every week and they're on the calendar. Mm, so good, Justin. So good. Yeah. And the last question for you is, is about how people can partner with care for AIDS, how they get, can connect, get connected to you. So maybe start with uh, how people can get involved with care for AIDS and then maybe your, uh, your contact info. Yeah. Um, we would love to tell you more about what we do to, uh, have you follow along on what we're doing online. You can go to careforaids.org uh, to get more information about what we do. You can receive information through emails, blogs, social media, all of that. Um, on all social media channels, it's Care for AIDS is our handle. Um, love for you to get involved in your community um, here in the U.S. Uh, if it is an opportunity for you to go to Kenya, there's opportunities for that as well. Uh, we'd love to host you over. And I say Kenya, it's actually now Kenya and Tanzania uh, as we've expanded there. Uh, so those are a few ways to get involved there. On the personal side, uh, there I have a website uh, called justintmiller.com. And there's a little bit of content up there. Um, would love your feedback on that. And we'll continue to, to add more over time, but hopefully just a resource for people who are thinking about starting an organization like care for aids and hopefully that'll be a resource for you. And all of my contact information is on there as well. So, um, we'd love to connect with you in some way. Thanks to Justin Miller for having a conversation around what it looks like to make steps towards solving large problems. If you'd like to see any resources or links to things mentioned in the show, visit the episode page at valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show almost anywhere you get your podcast. And if you have a spare moment, please do leave the show a review on iTunes. I would love to know what you think. Please also do join the email list, valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash subscribe. As a member of this tribe, you'll get brand new content delivered directly 
to your inbox. Well, that just about does it. Thanks for listening to the show. Until next time, make meaningful progress on things that matter. Yeah, we'll make it, we'll make it, I swear. We'll make it, we'll make it.